This is not about the pursuit of money. That's not what you're doing this for. It's the pursuit of freedom. It's not give me more money. What people really want is more freedom. It's Aspen Ideas to Go. I'm Trisha Johnson. On the show today, Kevin O'Leary, star of ABC's Shark Tank, on what makes a good entrepreneur. O'Leary, known as Mr. Wonderful on television, is an incredibly successful investor and businessman. So is this a really tiny niche that's going to stay tiny? Because if I guess if I In the 1980s, he built a children's software company that sold for $4 billion. Today, he runs his own financial services company and looks for worthy ventures to invest in. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events held by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. O'Leary was born into a middle-class family and learned most of his business intuition from his mother. He was highly dyslexic and got his first job scooping ice cream. He was promptly fired the first day. Learning to deal with failure, he says, is one of the traits that makes a great entrepreneur. In today's show, he talks about what he looks for in young entrepreneurs and whether entrepreneurship is taught or part of one's biology. How are government regulations, taxes, and talent impeding the start and growth of companies? And how important are startups to the American economy? O'Leary speaks with CNBC chairman Mark Hoffman. Here's Hoffman. He's been called a serial entrepreneur, and I guess he probably is, but I want to know what an entrepreneur really was, at least as, as it's defined. So I've got a couple of different uh, definitions of entrepreneurship, and then, we'll, and then we'll move forward. So entrepreneurship, capacity and willingness to develop, organize, manage a business venture along with any of its risks to make a profit. And then a subset of that is entrepreneurial spirit. And that's characterized by innovation and risk-taking, an inner fuel, seeing a gap, and having the guts, and I think guts is key, to exploit that observation. So to me, that kind of defines you. I mean, you are, I think, all those things. But were you, were you born that way? I mean, what, what happened in your... We're going to talk all about your professional life, but what happened... As a young person in school, your first job, your parents, what was talked about around the dinner table that got you moving in this direction? You know, it's, a, it's a great question, and, I, and I, it's one I ask of people that I'm about to invest in because I learned from my own story how important that transition is when somebody decides to take that entrepreneurial journey. So mine is very simple. I, I was a highly dyslexic child, lots of problems in reading and math skills, and it really held me back in high school. It was a very difficult time for me, and my mother was helping with me with experimental strategies by a woman named Marjorie Golick at McGill, and she took in 11 students to try some very eclectic stuff. When you're highly dyslexic, you can read a book upside down in a mirror, which is a very weird thing, and I still can do it. And what Marjorie said is, you're Superman. Nobody else can do it. Don't feel bad about this. Feel superior with that power. And that kind of philosophy helped me get confidence. But the moment, that I'll, and I'll never forget, that I became an entrepreneur was I got my first job at a place called Magoo Ice Cream Parlor. And it was a place where, like anything else, you scooped ice cream. And I got hired as a scooper because the girl I really liked in my class was working in the shoe store across the mall. Right there, I could go through the window <laughs> and I could see her. And that's an important piece of information because on the first day when the store closed and Elizabeth was you know, selling shoes, the woman who owned it said to me, okay, great, now get down and get the gum out of the Spanish tile because when people are taking samples, they take their gum out and throw it on the floor. And I said, whoa, <laughs> I'm a scooper, not a scraper. <laughs> and and uh, I was really worried about Liz seeing me on the floor scraping gum. And she fired me right there. She whacked me right there. How far into your job were you? First day. First day. <laughs> I got whacked, and I, I rode home in shame, and I told my mother, and she said, you must be kidding. You got fired on your first day, and my father was depressed. They thought it had to do with my dyslexia and all that stuff. I said, no, no, I held my ground. She wanted me to scrape, and I'm a scooper. And that was the moment that I realized there's two types of people in the world. 
either you own the store or you scrape the shit off the floor. <laughs> those, those, are the, those are the two deals. And that, that's it. Now, decades later, we took a television crew to find that woman because I give her credit for changing my direction in, in perpetuity. There's no question. And at that point, I could afford to buy the mall and bulldoze it. But <laughs> had I not had that day with her, we never could find her. We press tried to find her. But she was the pivot. And that, it turns out to be, very relevant for many entrepreneurs. You ask them their, their backstories, you get a day like that. Yeah. So that triggered something. But you grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. Your mother was a business, ran a business, was, a, was, a, was an investor. Your father was a salesman. You know, so you, you, came, um, uh, you came from a place where business was and the, and the motivation, particularly through the eyes of a salesman. I mean, salesmen are, uh, have got to chase, chase very, very hard to, to, to make a living. Do you think it's nurture or nature? Can you, can you uh, is it in you or can you be taught? You know, I, I, that question has been debated for, for generations. What motivates young entrepreneurs that I work with is fear. Fear of failure. That's what it is. When people take the risk, and they, particularly when they take other people's money, there's a heavy weight. The first time you take an investor's money, and I make sure they understand this, is you are no longer number one. You always are serving the customer, your employee, and the investor, and then you. And that generates a fair amount of angst in people when they realize that weight. So I would say if you can harness fear to motivate you, you have the DNA to be an entrepreneur. If you can't deal with that, you will never be successful because it's risk mitigation. It's fear management. It's looking in the mirror and saying, oh, no, I, I can't disclose to anybody else that I know I have such fear about what's going to happen here, but I have to be a leader to these people. They have to believe I know what I'm doing. And those are all the things that happen to entrepreneurs. It boils down to, to being able to harness fear in a positive way. That's my interpretation of an entrepreneur. You know, I want to I mine that a little more. Uh, and, and first, I want to I describe some research that we did recently at, at CNBC. We talked to 1,600 adults between the ages of 25 and 54. And what we were, we were trying to understand is, is um, uh, it was a programming piece of research, and we were trying to understand why Shark Tank was successful and some of the other things we were doing at CNBC. And we learned a whole bunch of things pro about programming. Uh, but the, the most interesting and outstanding piece of the research was that we learned that 82% of people are dissatisfied with their job. 82%, 25 to 54, for some reason. Either they didn't realize their ambition, life got in the way, they've got a bad boss, they've got a bad commute, for whatever, they feel they're underpaid, for whatever, for whatever reason. But among that 82%, 90% of them aspired to do better, and most importantly, believed they could. So 70% of the study thought that, that life could get better if they could get on the right track. So there's something percolating just beneath the surface, based on our research and then some other research that we've seen that corresponds with ours, that there could be something that could really move the economy of this country on the back of drive, ambition, aspiration, and entrepreneurship. Do you think that's true? I do. I, I see it at a different level now. I've, one of the things I do a lot of these days is teach. I teach graduating cohorts of engineers. Why? Because within an engineering class at Notre Dame or MIT, for example, a third of the class is going to attempt right out of that classroom to start a business. That's the nature of, of, of engineers. I don't care if they're electrical, mechanical, chemical, robotics, smoking hot right now. And you ask them, you know, why don't you go work for somebody first so you get your, your legs? They have no intention of doing that. They are ready. They, they've paid, in their minds, they've paid their dues. They've worked like hell to get into MIT in the first place, which, by the way, you need practically a perfect math score. Um, and th they... They want to go it on their own. And I do it for selfish reasons. I want to see their deals before the venture capital <laughs> see their deals. But the, the, their, their ability to be myopically focused on that, and the one thing I teach them is 
This is not about the pursuit of money. That's not what you're doing this for. It's the pursuit of freedom. If you could set yourself free, which is the undertone of what you're talking mm -hmm. about, it's not give me more money. What people really want is more freedom. And the way you get there is through <coughs> financial security. But I don't know how much you need anymore. If what, I mean, you, you make $50 million. What do you need more than that for? But people keep going. Right. But, but most people are not there. I mean, most people are, in our study, <laughs> you, know, you know, most people are not there. Um, you know, they're, 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 uh, I think the median household income was somewhere in the sixty-five dollars to $70,000 range. And, 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 and that is, and, and there is that drive. And I think it is fear. I think it is what I mentioned in the beginning. It is, that, it is the guts to do it. It's, the, it's not only the desire to do it, but it's the, the guts to do it. But let's talk about what's getting in the way of more of it. And yeah. that goes to government and taxes and talent and all the things that align to either streamline or impede the ability to, to yeah. start and grow companies. Okay, so rather, rather, you know, this might get us in, into the, in the minefield of politics, but I've been doing Shark Tank for a, almost a decade now. And so I've got over, now, I did seven deals this week. We're taping it right now in Los Angeles. So uh, 50 companies, okay, more, more than 50. In every geography, practically every state, in every sector. And, and I've had a chance to go to the previous White House three times. Every year I'd go there and I'd sit down and talk to the president about this. This is my personal opinion. Okay, because I've been doing, I've been an entrepreneur and investor a long time, and I remember when I came up with my company, what it was like versus what I deal with today. We are the most overregulated economy in the world, from the municipal, from the state, and the federal level. And I know people talk about it. I'm telling you, it's broken. And I'll tell you why I say that, because I deal with companies that are starting. They are the bedrock of American jobs when they start with two employees and they grow to 50. That's what I do. I've got 50 companies like that. I see, let me give you an example, a real, a real example. Wine and Design, a startup by a woman who said, I bet you if I rented 1,200 square foot storefronts in cities across America and got an artist there and brought in some good wine, people would pay me a lot of money to paint and drink at the same time. And she did do that. And it's a wildly successful franchise. In California, when she's trying to open up another store, I was there shooting this week, another location. The regulations are so punitive, so difficult, that it takes three years to open up another facility. Now that is broken. I don't care how you cut it. What the size of the bathroom is, the color of the mirror, is the back door frosted glass or not? How far, how many steps from the bathroom to the sink? I mean, complete garbage. So you're not saying no regulation. You're no, saying no, no. I mean, it, you're characterizing it as ridiculous regulation. I don't know how we did this to ourselves. I don't know how this happened. But, you know, the reason, here's my opinion. I am 100% convinced the reason we can't get past 2% GDP growth is regulation. That's what I believe. That's what I believe. And, no, and there's nobody that could convince me otherwise. So I'm I, very surprised by the applause, I have to tell you. They're right. They're right I mean, to applause. A, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. We can, we not, cannot, I'm very how, surprised by it. How is anybody in here happy that Modi can grow India at 6 and 7%? Same with Chinese. And we can't get to 2 are you okay with that? I'm not. So you're okay Kevin. With that. You're saying that the talent is there. Huge. That the that the the ideas are queued up. That the capital is available, and that the number one issue is regulation. But number you, one. But let's go to the talent. I mean, yeah. you think the talent is you think the talent is there. You're listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. On the show today, businessman and entrepreneur Kevin O'Leary. There's another great episode we want to tell you about. Comedian and talk show host Pete Dominic sat down with New York Times writer Wajaha Ali and Trayvon Free this summer at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Free writes for the TV show Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. They talk and joke about politics, a changing America, and race. 
Wad, you also grew up in California, and you were Fremontista. Uh, one of the Fremontista in California, <laughs> and you were a token brown guy, token Muslim, yeah, token, token everything, token left-handed guy. Uh, I know you're struggling now, uh, but no, listen. It goes back Find their conversation by searching Aspen Ideas to Go on Apple Podcasts, then scroll to Takeover Four. You can also find a link to the episode in our show notes. Back to our featured conversation with Kevin O'Leary and Mark Hoffman. Here's Mark Hoffman. Let's talk about um, whether big business can have a chilling effect on the startup culture. If big business gets in the way of it, has the ability to quickly gobble it up, has the quick, it can be predatory in the way they approach a market. Yeah, uh, you know, my preference when I'm investing is to do it outside. I mean, I'll give you an example without naming the telco. I saw a deal I really liked that was aggregating online gaming and the, the largest partner was the telco. You would intuitively think that's a good idea because they already have the pipe. The reason the deal failed was the telco. Every time there was a meeting with management, there were 21 people there. I mean, people try and protect the vision. It's a huge telco. And I realized this is broken. I mean, you can't get anything done. All our competitors just meet with themselves, make a decision, roll on, take risk. The right thing to do was, would, would have been to build that business up, get it to 50 million sales, then sell it to a telco. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the camp that says very few companies, maybe you could argue Tesla, maybe Amazon, maybe Comcast to be fair, you know, because they're our sponsor. <laughs> that, 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 that maybe they keep... And in a, some cases, our employer. Exactly. Right. And that's true, yeah. I work for you. That's you right. I love those Comcast guys, I can tell you. <laughs> but but the, 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 point, the point is that... It, you, I had to work that out, but I got it. I know, got it for the, the Comcast is, people. To actually keep an entrepreneurial spirit is to let ra- you know, rabble-rousers in, in your midst, pain-in-the-ass people within a, a big corporate infrastructure. If you can tolerate that, then you can achieve. But aren't the best big companies entrepreneurial inside? You don't have to be a startup person to be entrepreneurial. No, you can't. You innovate and be entrepreneurial inside a larger. Can't one uh, uh, be entrepreneurial inside a big institution? Yeah. You can't. You be a change agent inside. I I think the problem is the politics beat you down. And if you really have that skill set, what the hell are you doing in a big company for? Why don't you go get your own equity and do it yourself? That's the way I look at it. When I meet people, I try and figure out, is this person someone that can um, do it outside of this company? When they they say they want to leave a big company and start up, Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily going to work. They don't know what it's like to to get up at 3 in the morning sweating and making sure they got to make payroll because they've been in a big company. I like to invest in, in men and women that have failed a couple of times out there in the real world. I love them the third time around. The fear is up here. And, and the desire to win is, is, is just massive. You yeah. know, the ones that come out and say, look, I've, I, I've a great idea. I've never run a business. And I, you know, my mother gave me 10,000 bucks. Um, I'm ready to go. I'm thinking, gee, the real world hasn't eaten them alive yet. Right, it's, right, it's, right. So let's talk about talent now. If, if, if you look at um, immigrants, um, you look at the unicorn businesses, and we all know what they are. More than 50% of those are started by an immigrant. Right. But if you look at women and if you look at minorities, they way, way, way lag the white male field. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm sure you're seeing that, not only in, your, in, in how they cast for your program, but in right. your life as an entrepreneur. Well, uh, what, what, what's, the, what's your sense of the trend and what's a way to accelerate participation among those who are not participating? Well, I'm going to talk about one trend that, that is real data. This isn't research. This is my companies. So nine years of data, over 50 companies in practically every state, as I said earlier. Not some of my returns. All of my returns have come from the ones run by women. Now, why is that? Why is that? Now, I'm not trying to start gender warfare here. I've often said I'd give money to a goat if I get a return. But, but let, 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 me, let me tell you what, what is going on there, because these are private companies. The largest is about $495 million in sales. The smallest is five. Average employees, 25. Here it is. Time management skills. 
extraordinary time management skills. That old adage, you want something done, give it to a busy mother, is 100% true. But here's other data that's important. If you look at the guys, the, you know, because we get our companies together, this year it'll be in South Beach, all the CEOs together to try and swap ideas, reduce customer acquisition costs, get me more money back, you know, trying to figure out how do I get my capital return. When women set goals, they're achieved 90% of the time. When men set them, they're achieved 60% of the time. That, that testosterone run for the sky stuff doesn't work because when teams achieve goals, the morale goes up, the employee turnover goes down, the company has a higher RRR. IRR because that's all I care about. I want my capital back. So I'm, I'm making more money with the women-led companies because they are, they are running cultures that are more successful. And, I, and that's, a, that's talent to me. So if you look at this season of Shark Tank, I don't think I've done a deal with a guy yet. I've done seven deals. They're all, well, maybe, maybe there's one. Maybe there's one. That's, I got I to gotta make it look good. Yeah. <laughs> so you mentioned Shark Tank. So let's talk, about, let's talk about Shark Tank. First of all, Mr. Wonderful, do you got to be a tough guy to be an entrepreneur? You gotta be, do you have to be tough? Do you got to be mercenary? Do you have to be a killer? Well, ask yourself something. Because that certainly is the part you play on the yeah, program. Yeah, but, you know, I always say, is it so bad to tell the truth when, when the one binary think, thing in business is black and white, you either make money or you lose it. Those are the two things. That, those are the outcomes. They're binary. And when people come in and you feel sorry for them because the business isn't working and you want to give them encouragement, I say, screw all that. It's a stupid idea, and it's going to go to zero. And they're going to waste their time. And then I get labeled being a mean guy for that. My attitude is, you know what? Wait till the real world gets a hold of you. You think it's tough in here. I'm a nothing burger compared to what you're going to get. Right. When the real world tears you to pieces, you can go bankrupt and wipe out your whole family's savings. That's what I'm talking about. And you know, I say this. Yesterday, there was a, a young guy on his knees crying in front of me. And I was saying the same thing. He's broke down and started crying. I went, oh, please. You know, it, it's, it's like. All right, I got it. No. All right. The answer to my question is yes, it is you. OK. Right. So let's talk about, let's talk about the, the uh, and then we're going to get to questions. So get your questions going. We're going to talk a little bit about what you, what you see in the, the presenters on Shark Tank, not how they play the game, not even how they necessarily pitch unless that's important, but what it is about their character, their drive, their ambition, their creativity. What is it about them that hooks you? Here's data that is really interesting, uh, that if it's the only thing you remember from this presentation, it's, it's very valuable data, and I use it when I teach engineers now. You look at the format Shark Tank, which is owned by Sony, it's on in multiple countries around the world. It's on in Brazil, in Canada, in England, in Australia. And there was a professor that um, decided to do a thesis on this. And I, the reason I learned about him is he takes unedited tape of all of the pitches and tries to determine are there common attributes between the entrepreneurs that got funded and the ones that didn't. Are there any common traits in multiple geographies and multiple languages, right? And it, there is. And here's what they are. 100% of the time, for the, this does not determine the outcome of the business, okay? Just the fact they got a shark or a dragon, it's called Dragon's Den in other countries, to give them a check. 100% mm -hmm. of the time, they're able to articulate the opportunity in 90 seconds or less. Okay, presentation. But communication skills in a short, very defined period of time, in fact, the data shows it was under 60 seconds to explain what the opportunity was. You know, and I'll give you an example of uh, something like uh, Wicked Good Cupcakes, a cupcake company that takes cupcakes, put them in a mason jar, and FedEx them to you as a gift. So that woman came out and said, I take cupcakes, I put them in a mason jar, I FedEx them to you, I sell a lot of cupcakes. <laughs> okay, I know what that is. <laughs> I, I, I got that. That was 18 seconds. So that's attribute number one. Number two is it takes longer, but in every case where there was success, they were able to articulate why they were the right person to execute the business plan. Or persons, more of the time, it was something like 80%, it was a team. And they had some personal experience. They worked in the cupcake industry, or they'd failed before, and they figured out what they'd done wrong, or they'd, they'd grown up in a family of cupcake bakers, or whatever it is that gives them that, that, you know, that credibility. That's two. But here's the killer. Here's the one that is the most interesting. And this is what I tell the engineers, because a third of them are going to go out and do this. If you don't know your numbers, 
you're dead. Because you get the first two, the room's teeming, it's sizzling. The, there's investors that want to invest, they found a good deal, and then they say, okay, how big is the market? How fast is it growing? How many competitors are there? What's the break-even analysis? And you don't know that? Well, you deserve to burn in hell in perpetuity. I reference previous question. But that's what happens. It, you, you completely collapse. You can't right. go back. Those three things, those are the definition of leadership. If you're a pastor, if you're a politician, if you're a corporate leader, if you're a social worker, those are still the same three attributes you have to have. A new podcast just came on the scene and it's worth checking out. Aspen Insight tells the stories of global changemakers connected to the Aspen Institute. Marcy Krivenin, who hosts the show with Zach St. Louis, is here to introduce us to one. Hey, Marcy. Hey, Tricia. So Robert Hakiza is working to find a solution to one of the world's most complex challenges, refugees. He's a refugee himself. He fled war in East Congo and ended up in Kampala, Uganda, where he and his family joined thousands of others who struggled to make money, get food, and just live. I didn't want to be in the situation where I could just sit down, you know, and wait for some people to come and support or sit down and start crying or life is difficult. I and my colleagues looked at the opportunities that were around. And one of them was the opportunity of the policy, the refugee policy in Uganda. They started mobilizing people, especially the youth. First, they created a space where people could come together and share their experiences. I believe, uh, and then we believe that uh, if people come together and discuss, they can, they can get solutions sometimes. Robert co-founded a nonprofit that unites urban refugees through sports, English classes, and work skills. He's also an Aspen New Voices Fellow. He sounds fascinating, Marcy. So how would listeners find that episode? They can find it by searching Aspen Insight on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, Marcy. Coming up, Kevin O'Leary explains the process of Shark Tank. Turns out those seven-minute pitches last more than an hour offset. Here's Mark Hoffman. What should we talk about? Yes. So as the parent of four millennials and uh, all of them entrepreneurs, I'm shocked that the millennial generation isn't the greatest entrepreneurial boom in this country's history. But apparently the data says that, that, there, that there aren't as many entrepreneurs in the millennial generation yet as there, as, as there could be. Is that because they don't want to sacrifice their lifestyle? It is. That's, that, the data is correct. There's a sense of entitlement in that generation right now, which is very unhealthy. I see it all the time. I see it a lot. It's because their previous generation was the most successful in American history financially. And as a result, there's a generational passing of wealth to a lot of entitled brats. That's what's going on. I beat them up every day on Shark Tank. I eviscerate <laughs> that's, that's basically what's happening. This is the richest, this is the largest passing of wealth in America's history. Yes, yes. I don't think you're nearly as mean as you pass yourself off to be. Can don't you, tell anybody. <laughs> you hurt my brand. Can you talk a little bit about the process uh, in Shark Tank? Like, how much information do you have about the entrepreneurs who come on? And um, is there a contingency if you learn things about, uh, about them and the, their business afterwards? Can you talk a little bit about the show? Yeah, that's the, one of the common misconceptions. The two big ones are, uh, is it really your own money? And the answer is yes. And number two is, we never know what's coming through the door because it's the process of discovery that makes the show work. In fact, in, in the NDAs they have to sign, if somebody comes to me with an idea and tells me what it is, they can never be on Shark Tank. So I always tell people that stop me in the hall, I've got a great idea I want to tell you, but don't tell me about it because I won't breach that covenant. And when I see you on that set, and it's happened a few times, when they'll come out and I went, oh, you know. They're trying to game the system. They've been in my office the week before and now they're on the carpet. I get up and say, stop the cameras. This person is not playing by the rules because it doesn't work. You, you, need, you need to go through the discovery. Once you do a deal, because you've the average deal is about an hour and 10 minutes. It's edited down to seven. But what happens is you get, we, we all have our own venture capital firms now. I have, mine's run by a guy named Alex Kenjeev, who is a Russian uh, born, Lawyer, MBA, poet, very strange dude. 
but, but, but he's a very popular guy with entrepreneurs because he came up himself, he was a successful entrepreneur and operator. But Alex runs the show. We hire dozens of interns this time of year from all kinds of colleges, and we give them the task of doing due diligence. What happens in front of those lights a lot of the time is people tend to be extremely optimistic and often leave out important facts like spending a couple of years in a federal prison. That kind of thing. And so in, in the due diligence process, we discover all that, and about 60% of the deals close, which is way higher than venture capital firms. Because the platform of Shark Tank, as Mark well knows, is a monster platform to launch products off. We do hundreds of millions in sales now. Very often on, on Shark Tank night, we'll do $2 million of a product, just like that. Just like that, because it's 10 million eyeballs see it. How about right here? Uh, I'm a Baltimore City High School student, and um, in my school I tried to start an entrepreneurship club, but I found that it was really difficult to stir up interest in entrepreneurship despite it being the pursuit of freedom like you said. How would you say is the best way to stir up interest in other students like me that are like 17, 18 years old? Well, a lot of people don't know. I mean, Mark opened with the description of what entrepreneurship is. You have to have a basic interest in pursuing a business career to be interested in learning about what it takes to be an entrepreneur. But what I find works in high schools is if you do form a club, or even only, only two of you, invite in interesting guests so that other students would want to hear from them. You know, I, I do a lot of this in Shark Tank. Come in and talk to high schoolers because they love Shark Tank and try to kindle that spirit, that spark, and explain what that life is about and why you'd want to pursue it. Basically, within the population, and again, Mark talked about this, one-third of people that are working today want to run their own lives, at least. Maybe the data says higher, but what I believe is, having seen them come up through college, a third are burning in desire to control their own destiny. And the other two-thirds are saying, I don't know if I want to work weekends. I don't know if I want to do that. You know, it's, that's basically yeah. it. That's okay. That's yeah, a yeah, choice. Okay. Yeah. That's a choice. Where's the microphone? I have a small business. I'm a handbag designer. I make everything. I'm from Texas. I manufacture everything in New York. Very proud of that. And I'm here doing the Ideas Festival, and then I sell my product, a very high-end product, directly. It's just direct to the customer. And so my, I have two questions. First of all, this morning I woke up, and I was so nervous. I mean, I was like nervous as a whore in church. I'm like, oh, my God, I hope people come. This fear. And it, wow. it is with me like all the time and it puts a fire under my tail and I, I like, like that how do I replicate me yeah because I know so, I'm good at what I do but how do I take so in in, uh, in in startup companies like this one which is a product trying to become a company I think the number one challenge is customer acquisition cost eight out of ten go bankrupt within two years because the cost of the customer acquisition is higher than the lifetime value of the customer I see this all the time and so you have to figure out when you're, there's no barriers to entry in any category now because the cost of technology is so low in access to the customers. But people think you throw up a website and all of a sudden you're gonna get customers. It doesn't happen anymore. In fact, it's getting harder and harder to attract them because of all the noise. That's the issue. If you're gonna launch a business, solve for customer acquisition cost. In the fashion accessories business, there is a great strategy used by the successful companies to hire influencers or bloggers. Um, there's a company now that does this in the Ukraine where the content is generated by people that are getting paid six bucks an hour and then Americanized with an editor here and posted so the search results. I mean, if you go online and look for these services, they're there. You think that would work in politics? It's, <laughs> you know, by the way, th there's a great documentary I was watching on the plane here this morning. I got up really early to get here you got to see the answer to that question called Get Me Roger Stone. you got to watch that on Netflix. It is fantastic. Oh my goodness, is right. that good. Right there, coming at you. So I get to see a lot of startups like you. And um, you know, one observation I have is that a lot of uh, people aren't built to be entrepreneurs. But in the society, we seem to be sort of laying entrepreneurs at, uh, entrepreneurism out there as some sort of panacea. That inner city youth or... You know, everybody is potentially an entrepreneur. Go pursue your dream, and, and, and there you go. I think the same thing's happening in coding. If you learn to code, right. you're instantly a great coder, and you're instantly going to be wealthy. Do you see the same thing? And you know, are we doing the right job at sort of filtering it to the right people or giving them false hope? I have a thesis about that question, and, it, and here's what it is. 
If you recall 07, 08, 09, the tremendous volatility in financial markets and in corporate America, a dream was broken forever. The concept that you could be safe in a large corporation, that somehow your job was protected because you'd given your life to that company, well, that's complete bullshit now. And so the rise of entrepreneurialism as a theme came in my view because the risk of being an entrepreneur is the same as being an employee at a company where you basically have no equity. So when you look at that and you're in your 20s, you start to say to yourself, why wouldn't I take this high risk option? It's the same risk as being working at IBM where they whack thousands of people every quarter now because of, of the disruption going on in all of these different sectors. And certainly, you know, when I talk to my own son who's, uh, I've decided not to give any money to my kids. The deal I gave them was birth to last day of college, full freight on everything, and then nothing. And they, got, they thought that was great when they were four years old. <laughs> but that's, that's basically what my mother did to me, and it was very tough, but you figured it out. I think it got my son thinking about engineering. He's now in his second year, and he's sweating bullets. He's doing this because he's got to get a job. Well, I, my, thankfully, you have enough money that you can hire people in to support you in your old age. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, can, they will come in and take care of you. Um, Andrew Ross Sorkin. So you, you talked about uh, fear driving great entrepreneurs, especially early on when they're startups. And you talked about once you get to $50 million, what are you doing it for? So the question for you is, what are you doing it for at this point? Well, Andrew, that's a good question. And I decided to retire. And for three years, I went to every beach on earth. I, it was my thing. I wanted to see every beach that was legendary. And I did it. It's really boring. Like, it, it's, it's really boring. And, and I saw, you know, some of, some of the guys that came up with me in the learning company that had the same outcome as I had. Everybody took some time off, but then deals started to happen. And Scott Murray, my, uh, my CFO, said, let's do a SPAC together, Kevin. Let's go raise $350 million. And I said, what are we going to buy? He said, I don't know. Let's just go raise $350 million. We can do it. People know who we are. And we did. And the next day, we had $350 million. I said, Scott, what are we going to do with this money? He said, we're going to buy call centers all around the world. And I was right back in the game with him. We sold that to, um, I can't remember who we sold that one to, but it was a good one. That was a good one. And I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed the, the process. I want to be in the game. And now I really want to be in the game. I love Shark Tank so much because you can find a great entrepreneur, man or woman, and give them a special platform and really kick ass out there. Take a cupcake company no one's ever heard of, and in 36 months, make it the number one cupcake company in America that, that FedEx ships cupcakes with. That's cool. Who doesn't want to do that? And money. <laughs> it's questions. a scorecard. Lots of questions. Uh, I have a question for you. First of all, would you buy my squatty potty back for me? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you know the thing with... With squatty Is potty. it still in the box? Yes, it's still in the box. I want you to know that there, there is a private equity firm consolidating the toilet accessory industry right now. Because I have a deal called a Luma Bowl. I don't know if anybody remembers it. You walk near your toilet and it lights up. And everybody thought that was going to be a complete piece of crap. Do you know, on the night it aired, it sold $7 million dollars on site and in retail, because it was on a Bed Bath & Beyond display. I'm the king of toilets today. So, <laughs> and so, and we're, we're now trying to combine a Squatty Potty with, because uh, these guys know each other. The, you know the challenge of Squatty Potty and with Is Louisville? there a convention for all the... Some retailers don't want to be in the shit business. <laughs> and so, yet the product really sells. And I'm saying, you're crazy. This is an absolutely fantastic category. People spend a lot of time doing this, and they want the best products for us. <laughs> so so the, real, the real question was, it appears now in the latter episodes um, uh, of Shark Tank that a number of people are coming on board just to get on board. They have products, and they know the minute that they're presenting them to you, win or lose and get a shark or not, 
their products take off. So the question is, have you guys followed with the data the people that didn't get the deal and, and what percentage of those, because of the Shark Tank, have actually, have actually gone on to be successful? Yeah, you're right. We call them gold diggers. Oh, and, and they use, they're trying to use the platform. What often, ha well, it doesn't often this year, much less, but the producers are getting hip to this. They'll come out, tell the producers they're going to put a valuation in the business of, uh, you know, a million dollars, ask for 10% for 100,000. Then they'll step out and say, I want 2 million for 10%, knowing full well no one's going to do that, but they got their moment in the sun. We'll just stop tape on that stuff now. You know, you, you can't game the system anymore, or, or it'll never air, or, you know, they don't, it's not right to take that opportunity away. There's 40,000 applications. We tape 10 a day. It takes a day and a half to make an episode. The people that are on that carpet deserve to have the, the chance to have the, their dream come true. I mean, it's, this, I was just taping last night. At this, that, that's it, excuse me. You have to be wily and crafty, though, to be a good, yeah. you don't have to be yeah, illegal, you, also, you don't you have know, to break laws, but you have to be wily and crafty. And to get out there, if someone is, is, is trying to figure out how to leapfrog the competition or you know, they believe so desperately in their handbag or whatever that they want to get, that, that uh, they might try and slip the noose and get out there. Now, you ca if you catch them, you catch them. Yeah. Right? No, there's some, look, some are going to get through, but the point is, I have, you know, I have never, this season, I have never seen more emotion pouring out of people, breaking down in tears, totally destroyed by not getting that deal. I mean, and they don't deserve the deal because their idea is a stupid one. And, and it's, it's, but you know, they, because they've gone through the whole process and all of the competition to get through, they feel entitled that I'm here. Give me money. Yeah. There's a question in the back. I saw someone has a microphone back there. The consolidation in the United States, many companies merging. Are they providing opportunities for entrepreneurs to fill niches? Do you see the yin yang to it? You mean the cycle of consolidation? But also, there's another side to it, provides opportunities. No, I think it makes it tougher. I think when you're competing against scale, it makes it harder. I mean, you know, the, the Amazon effect, which is detailed daily on CNBC in every sector, is it Amazon proof? Is it getting Amazon? It's, it's a description of, of what's changing and competing with them. You see, the, the, the problem with, with Amazon, because by the way, they're great partners. The Sharks do hundreds of millions of dollars on the preferred platform now. They take the data, they look at what's selling, and they bring out their own products. And I mean, th they have every right to do that, but they're also fair. One of the things I'll say about Amazon that a lot of people don't know is when you get a hit product, I mean a real hit, within two weeks it's knocked off all across the online platforms, the most important one being Amazon. Very often the same Chinese manufacturer that's making it is at night making your competitor's product. The great thing about Amazon, and I got to hand it to Bezos on this, you call up your relationship guy there, I have one right at the top, and I say, I'm going to FedEx you the, the patent, physically send you the patent for our American-made product that you are knocking off on seven other listings, and I want them shut down. And if you can prove the physical patent exists, he'll do it. He'll turn those guys off, and that is very cool. That is a great American gift, and that's the right thing to do, by the way. Yes, in the back. I was very much uh, interested in your comments about over-regulation. I think everyone in the business community uh, has had to deal with that problem. Andrew doesn't think so. <laughs> in, in one way or another. Just, point, just pulling it out, just trying to get something controversial going. Do you, have some, do you have some ideas? for how to convince our Congress and some of our state legislatures and municipalities that the effect that they're having on, on uh, the development of, of new businesses in, in our economy. Almost all net new job growth comes from startups. That's been a fact for 30 years. I'm very disappointed in, uh, in how the process works, and I have personally tried to change it. I, I am, I don't, I, I think the only way to, to make it work is to put into law that every time a new regulation is created, three have to be removed. And then you start getting, and also no regulation can stay on the books for more than five years. They automatically fall off. It has to be that way. Politicians are weak and they're extreme. I, I don't, 
I'm not a big fan. Uh, I, and I've been on the inside of it and come, I've, I've, I tried to run to become Prime Minister of Canada. I learned a lot of important lessons. I really enjoyed it, but I also learned a lot of dark stuff I don't like. Now I see how it works. It's a really scummy game. And there's a lot of bad stuff. And the, I think the only way to control it is to put into law things that force regulation out at the municipal and the state and the federal level. It can't stay longer than five years. And if it's worth a good regulation, and by the way, this includes financial services, you reinstate it if it's worth having. But it just doesn't sit there. It's killing America. I personally believe that. 100%. 100%. Who's hey. Early on, we talked about the lack of entrepreneurs. I was very lucky. I had a private entrepreneur, and I built a very large company. I talked to so many young people today. Banks don't want to hear from them. They can't. Not everybody raises a $100 million company. But more entrepreneurs would happen if the banks would start giving them some startup money. Money, And I don't understand why or where the, those people can go. I can tell you exactly why it's not happening. Um, regulation. And so you cannot put that kind of debt on your balance sheet now because of the, the means test on the bank and the leverage ratios we have in place. In my view, that's un-American. That's what I think. And on top of that, um, we have generated a new industry I'm an investor in, the on-dex of the world and the IOU centrals, where it's usury rates of 22%, 23%, that used to be loaned out at seven from banks. How has anybody been helped with this? None. So we, de we regulate the banks to a place where they won't lend to startups or small companies, and a new industry funded by hedge fund guys is, is supplying them capital at an, alar an alarming rate at 22% average cost. What are, what, how stupid is that? No, it's stupid. It's a stupid outcome. You can get, you can get cheaper money in India or Cyprus or, or Israel or, uh, or, or anywhere else. Not here. Yes. Um, my, my question relates to the last uh, question. Given the amount of regulation uh, in the domestic market or in Canada as well, uh, how much of your portfolio is domestic and how much is international? International markets might have yeah. different regulations. Um, yeah, that is a good question. 60% uh, now is domestic and 40 is international. And I've made more, more money in, in Europe in the last two years than here. And a big surprise to me, there are more startups per capita in France that used to be a socialist country. Lots of deals, particularly in biotech and all kinds of interesting stuff coming out of there. France. like. France. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's a, that means we got to get things going here. That's, uh, that's a big deal. Hi. Um, we're, we talk a lot about gender equality. And on Shark Tank, there's been a pretty good balance of, of gender in really presenting their deals. But what you do still see in the best startups and the most successful startups today is that there's still gender inequality on boards. What do you feel like is really the next step in making that equality real? Performance. I, I, I believe that capital goes to the, to the um, path of least resistance. And the truth is, it certainly in my experience has been, and I'm just a microcosm of this, I'm getting higher returns from women-led companies. So my propensity to lend and to invest in those is much higher. I think, I, I don't believe in, in, in the glass ceiling. I think women will end up in the next 20 years being totally equivalent in managing companies and being paid um, in, you know, in my, in my ETF business and my, my financial services business, the returns on women managers are higher of, of portfolios. Lower risk, it, it, this is not just me. This is data out there, and I think it's it's it's. I'm very optimistic that this issue is going to go away pretty quickly. Not because of is it fair or not. It's because of performance. The ultimate driver of capital is return. At low, the lowest risk you can get. That's what drives everything. And so, you know, we all want to try and be politically correct, but the truth is, money talks, and it's talking to a lot of women these days. Um, I'm wondering what you, what you think the biggest uh, fad is in the startup world right now, and uh, also what types of companies you think also have the most staying power. The biggest fad right now in startups is the idea that you are entitled to a $5 million valuation on anything. 
Everybody that comes out of Silicon Valley or Dallas or now Miami or Chicago or Boston is, hi, I want to do my first round. It's a $5 million pre. Why? Why? Who, who, who gave you that right? But that is so prevalent. It's everywhere. And I, I just refuse to, to engage in that. That's so stupid. Can we make our last question here? Let's make, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Quickly, many times the uh, entrepreneurs that start companies aren't necessarily the right people to grow them beyond a certain point. And I'm wondering how, in how many of your investments do you reach a point where you realize that the entrepreneur you've invested in isn't necessarily the right person to grow that business? And how often do you have to make uh, changes and sort of what factors do you look for? It's a great one to end on. Here's what I've learned after all these years. Getting, getting the first five million in sales is virtually impossible. It's practically impossible. Only 20% of the people ever get there. The five to 25 is where you learn whether your CEO is really a CEO or just a product person. And it's the most torturous thing. And I now, you know, I, I just know just from experience, it's a visceral feeling about that man or woman when I got to take them out behind the barn and shoot them. And, and, <laughs> and basic, but they don't lose their equity. The thing is, the way you do that is you, you say, look, we're never going to make any money together. But you're really good at this. But you can't run the logistics to $25 because we're growing like this. And you're going to have to step down or get a titular role like chairman of a private company with 20 people in it. Who cares? But you've got to take that away from them or everybody fails. And it fails. So you have to do that half the time. Who do you like partnering with on Shark Tank? Uh, who asks the best questions? Who's a diva? And who has the best reputation for recognizing opportunity? Well, there's only one answer. It's Mr. Wonderful. <laughs> That's a great way to Thank you very much. I was just Thank kidding. you, Kevin. Thank you. Kevin O'Leary is known as Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank. He's also the chairman of O'Shares Investments and the founder and chief sommelier of O'Leary Fine Wines. Mark Hoffman is an award-winning broadcast veteran with more than three decades of experience. He chairs CNBC. They spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow the Aspen Ideas Festival year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and me and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.